Hello and welcome to Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Vanity Fair and the New York Times. And I'm here today with my very special guest. You know him. You love him. You've heard him on the pod before. James, Frankie, Thomas. Boo, boo, boo. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is James Frankie Thomas. No relation. I'm so, so happy to be back on the podcast with my special friend, Peyton. This is so exciting. Now, this is a very full circle moment for us because back when we recorded the very first episode of Joe's Poise, I think it was December of 2021. This is how you introduced yourself. I'm Frankie Thomas. I am a 34-year-old writer living in New York City. I am shopping around a novel about uh, friendship uh, and (laughs) being gay. (laughs) And I'm gay and it's pretty cool. And I have always loved little women ever since I was in the second grade. And this is a special interest that I share with Peyton and a major foundation of our friendship. So it's been two years, James. How would you introduce yourself now? Very similarly, but hopefully with a significantly deeper voice. I'm going to be <laughs> excited and full of trepidation to hear the before after. Okay. But yeah, I am now a 36-year-old writer living in exactly the same apartment in New York City. Mm-hmm. And I am now shopping around that novel about friendship and being gay in the sense that it is coming out on September 12th at a bookstore near you. And you should buy it. I'm really psyched about it. It's called Idlewild. And I think it came out really, really good. Yeah, it rules. It fucking owns. It pones. I read this for the first, probably for the first time in 2020 when you were getting ready to do the shopping. And it was such a delight to read because it was so thick. I had that same feeling when you're reading a really long fanfic and you're like, I'm loving this. And there's 500,000 more. Okay, not that much. It's not a brick, but it's so special to me. It's so good. It is saying things that I, I didn't know you were allowed to say. In fiction, it's going to be so important to so many people. It's going to crack so many eggs. (laughs) I'm just so excited for it to be out in the world. We're recording this on September 8th, but this should be hitting you on September 22nd. So it's out in the world. Please pause the pod, go to the bookstore, buy it, let it change your life. Thank you for your kind words, Peyton. I want to remind you that the first version that you read was much, much longer than the version that actually is available in stores now. So if anyone was just put off by you saying it's like the world's longest fanfic, it is no longer like the world's longest fanfic. It is a very modest, slender, it's under 400 pages, 390 pages. I think it's a nice, thick boy. Yeah, Yeah, 389. Yeah. Respectable. You know I love like a thousand page book. Obviously, that's not news. I'm just like, I get to read the special edition. So ha ha. Yeah, you got the director's cut. Well, so now apart from being gay, what is Idlewild about? It is about two best friends at a private Quaker high school in lower Manhattan in the year after 9-11. And it has this unusual narrative structure where the two best friends are so close that they narrate in a shared voice. They narrate in a we voice as they are having their adventures in their school the year after 9-11. But these chapters alternate with these two best friends 15 years later. They are now in their 30s. They are narrating separately from their 30s and they are no longer best friends. They have not talked to each other in 15 years. 
And so the novel tells the story of this intense queer friendship between these two people and the story of what happened over the course of the 2002-2003 school year to create this permanent rift, rupture between them. The 2001-2000 school year. No, because they became friends oh, right after 9-11. Right. And the, in the very first chapter, you recall, it is the 9-11 anniversary. Right, right, right. I'm sorry. I understood that. I was just thinking in my head, 9-11 is the inciting incident of the FNN unit, as they're called. I'm going to read the back of the book because it's my podcast and I can do what I want. <laughs> it says, Idlewild is a tiny, artsy Quaker high school in lower Manhattan. Students call their teachers by their first names. There are no grades and every day begins with 20 minutes of contemplative silence in the meeting house. It is during one of those meetings that an airplane hits the Twin Towers. For two Idlewild outcasts, 9-11 serves as the first day of an intense 18-month friendship. Faye is prickly, aloof, and obsessed with gay men. Same. Nell is shy, sensitive, and obsessed with Faye. The two of them bond fiercely and spend all their waking hours giddily parsing their environment for homoerotic subtext. Then, during rehearsals for the fall play, they notice two sexually ambiguous boys, big fan of those, who are potential candidates for their exclusive invert society. The pairs become mirrors of one another and drive each other to make choices that they'll regret for the rest of their lives. It's like if Donna Tart wasn't a coward. <laughs> <laughs> that, I just want to say that's not on the back of the book. Peyton just that's added not a, that himself. <laughs> I don't think Donna Tart is a coward. I love you, Donna, if you're listening. You're not, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, James, I'm so fucking proud of you. This is so exciting. I'm so, so mm-hmm. happy and proud of myself, Peyton. And I'm really just so excited to be on your podcast. I've had to do yeah. so many podcast interviews over the last couple of weeks, and they're all fun mm-hmm. in their own way. But I feel like this one is like coming home. It's like metaphorically taking off my bra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've talked about Idlewild. I mean, now, what is the relationship of Idlewild to Little Women? Because we, we already know what your relationship to Little Women is. You've already been here. You've already answered that. What is the relationship of Idlewild to Little Women? Interesting question. Wow. I wish you'd given me some time to contemplate that one before. I'm sorry. I guess I would. No, you know, I would say that Little Women is so many things to so many people. And whatever you or anyone gets out of Little Women is valid because that novel is really for everyone. There are so few novels in the world that are as universally beloved and so meaningful to so many people as Little Women. But that being said, one thing that it seems to be unusual to get out of Little Women is this certain lens on the experience of gay transmasculinity, for want of a better yes. phrase. And yeah. you discovered this, I'm afraid, to your detriment, detriment somewhat <laughs> circa this past Christmas, I think. I remember reading it on Christmas morning. You took it public in the New York Times in that wonderful, yep. wonderful op-ed. Thank you. <laughs> you know, I guess you didn't hit the gay angle so much, but no. you certainly trans angle. And from my personal discussions with you, I think, you know, without saying we know what was inside of Louisa May Alcott's heart, I think you and I both find an incredible familiarity in a lot of her work, not just Little Women, yeah. but the mysterious Mademoiselle and a lot of her other yes, yeah. esoterica and juvenilia that you've looked at. <laughs> she wrote about men in a way that is very exciting and familiar to us as yeah. people who yeah. love men as men. There's just a certain <laughs> way of writing about men and boys, if you love them from a very gay, masculine yeah. perspective. You know, say what you will about Louisa May Alcott, but one reason it is so exciting to read that strain in Louisa May Alcott's work is that 
there's a small, very small canon of books that portray that feeling and feel relatable on that level. I do think Little Women is one of them and (laughs) The Mysterious Mademoiselle is another. And (laughs) Louisa May Alcott in general has given us so much if you are looking for that sort of thing. And I will say that if you are looking for that sort of thing, then Idlewild is 100% for you. I would not claim to be the first of anything, but I will say that speaking for myself, I am constantly looking for that sort of thing and it's difficult to find and Idlewild is that thing. So if you just love being gay, if you are (laughs) so obsessed with the beauty of men and being a gay man is just the apotheosis of your existence, or you imagine it might be hypothetically (laughs) if you chose to go there. I really think that you are the ideal reader for Idlewild and you should check it out. I would love to hear from you if you read it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say certainly if you are listening to this podcast, then Idlewild is your shit for you. I'm just going to pull up some podcast demographics here. Give me a moment because they're very funny and I think they drive your point home, (laughs) James. So if you are listening to this podcast, then Idlewild is your shit for you. I'm going to pull up our our demographics here. Our gender breakdown for the Joe's Boys podcast is 81.6% female, 9.1% non-binary, 5.7% male and 3.6% not specified. And I feel like that's... (laughs) I would like to imagine that the male demographic includes a handful of cis men. I think cis men would certainly enjoy this podcast if they gave it a chance, but I have a feeling that those males are not entirely (laughs) cis males. The fact that non-binary handily outnumbers male, I think says a lot about It basically replicates the demographic numbers of AO3, right? I think someone crunched the numbers of type of our own users. It's exactly the same numbers. Exactly. And probably, I don't know how many of those 81.6% females just forgot to update (laughs) the gender on Spotify. (laughs) (laughs) Next time they restart. Yeah. Yeah. If you're listening to this podcast, I have statistical data that Idlewild is for you and you will love it. And yeah, I think certainly... Little Women is this longing to both. We just did a great episode with Alice Rutkowski about the short story Enigmas, which is the one about a man who goes to spy on this other man. He looks so young and frail and delicate, and I'm attracted to him as if he were a woman. And then he's revealed, of course, this guy is revealed to be a in disguise. But the excuse he gives for being in this disguise is he's like, well, I was thinking about all the time I spent disguised as a boy, as a child, and I was really good at it. So I decided to disguise myself as a man again. (laughs) There's no explanation. (laughs) So I think there was definitely, I think Alcott thought a lot about what it might be like to be a man, what it might be like to be with a man as a man. I think Gay trans masculinity is such a, I'm very confident saying I think it's Alcott is best understood as a trans man, but Alcott's sexual identity is still a complete black box to me. I have no idea what's going on there, right? I think that might've been very fluid. I take her at her word when she says, I've been in love with so many girls who never wants the least little bit with any man. But there's also this, there are these like really intense, effusively affectionate relationships with men that I think are Greg Isolang, who's the current president of the LMA Society, has said they're more about identification than anything else. And it's that thing that so many trans men have of, do I want to be with you or be you? <laughs> and I think also some of it is, you know, sometimes you're a lesbian and a gay man and you only have one body to express that in. That's very real. 
right? So real. I love what you said about identification and desire. I really think that's one of the major things I was trying to capture in Idlewild is how intense the feeling of desire can be when you can't distinguish whether the desire is erotic or sexual or just sensual or perhaps a desire to consume, to replace, to destroy even. So take their place. It can get quite dark. It's a lot yes, of fun for me. Yeah. Well, Little Women never gets that dark. And this chapter before us today, James, it's like a cupcake. It is whipped yeah. cream on angel food cake, as I like to say. As Mitski first said, I believe it was Mitski who tweeted, talking to a Libra at the height of infatuation is like talking to whipped cream on angel food cake. And that's <laughs> that's this chapter. <laughs> I would say it is easily the most heterosexual chapter in the entire novel. I don't know if there's any chapter that comes close, even. It is, but it's it's a little unconventional in, way, in funny ways that we'll get into. Do I need to ask you which March sister you are? <laughs> that's actually a really interesting question. Because, of course, you know, everyone expects me to say Joe. I feel like everyone does say Joe. How many of your guests don't say Joe? <laughs> We have strident Megs and Amys and Beths, probably half Joe, and then the others get equal thirds of that half. That sounds about right. I will say that I first became obsessed with Little Women in, I guess, it would have been the second grade when the 1994 Little Women movie came out with Winona Ryder. And so that was my first exposure to Little Women. And as a seven-year-old, my favorite March sister was Beth. I wanted to be Beth because I took piano lessons at the time and I wanted to die. Like I didn't actually want to die, but I wanted everyone to stand at my bedside and cry over me and talk about me and think about me all the time. So I would play little women with my friends as a kid and we would always act out the scene of Beth's death. I was very bossy, which of course actually makes me Joe, (laughs) but in a very Joe way, I assigned roles to Emma and Lila were my friends I would play little women with. Yes, Emma actually wanted to be Joe. So that worked out great for her. Mm -hmm. And Emma, would stand at my bedside and cry. Lila was Emma's little sister and she uh-huh. had to do whatever we told her to do because she was little. So she had to be Meg. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is not the sequence of events in the novel, but in the 1994 movie, Meg is pregnant at the time of Beth's mm-hmm. death. So Lila just had to stand there and Emma, her sister would say, oh, why didn't you tell me? And Lila would say, one doesn't speak of such things. And then they would <laughs> And I would lie there and be like, you've all gone so far off and left me here, but now I'm going somewhere that you've never gone before and I'm not afraid. And then I would dramatically die and Emma and Lila would cry. So I guess I was just trying to make the argument that I was was Beth, but obviously I was extremely Joe, the most Joe story ever. Yeah, 1,100%. If anything, it's kind of Anne Green Gables, but she is not a March sister. She's an honorable (laughs) March sister. Yeah, she's like a descendant contemporary. It's I actually am not sure on the timeline there, but no, that makes a lot of sense. She is ever so slightly after Little Women. Ever so slightly. Yeah, okay. One little tidbit I would like to add is that you became obsessed with Little Women in the second grade because your school had a special screening because you went to school with Eva Murray Martino, who is Susan Sarandon's daughter. Yes. You know, I wish I could claim to have been best friends with Eva. I did have a play at her house once, but Mm -hmm. our families were not close. So I really only got to meet Susan Sarandon a handful of times, but she is from everything I know and can tell you a lovely, wonderful person and just such a sexy lady. I gotta say, she gets hot (laughs) every year. I just saw her on that TV show, Search Party, and she is so unbelievably hot. And I remember (laughs) 
being so drawn to the Marmy character in Little Women and also <laughs> to the spider in James and the Giant Peach to an extent that I was a little mortified when I found out that that was the voice of Susan Sarandon because oh really God. it's odd to have such feelings about your classmate's mom, but not every classmate's mom is Susan Sarandon. Wow, you're going full Stacy's mom about Susan Sarandon. I'm obsessed with it. I We have been here... 25 minutes, maybe, talking about things like Susan Sarandon being a MILF, your book, your dramatic <laughs> death portrayal of Beth. We've had Beths on the show before, but you're the first person to ever say, I was Beth because I wanted to die. And that is <laughs> that is a bold choice. <laughs> now, we've had so much ado. Thank you for listening, if you're listening through all this ado. But without further ado, James, would you please recap chapter 37, New Impressions? Yes, I would be glad to. So chapter 37, New Impressions, picks up on, I believe, Christmas morning in Nice in France. Mm-hmm. We are in the point of view of, well, actually, we're in an omniscient point of view of the Promenade des Anglais. And there's a description of all the diverse people who are hanging out in this thoroughfare, including some meek Jews, which is <laughs> not the only reference to the Jews that will come up in this chapter. No, yeah. And it emerges that The omniscient narrator is following a young man who is obviously Laurie. He's waiting for someone. He is looking up, hopefully, at every blonde girl in blue, because he's looking for one particular blonde girl in blue. Eventually, that blonde girl in blue appears. It is Amy March. And she and Laurie have not seen each other in a long time. They've been apart for a long time because they've both been traveling in different parts of the world. So really, much of this chapter is Amy and Laurie just catching up. And it's it's a little interesting. They haven't seen each other in so long. Amy has really grown up since she's last seen Laurie. The thing about Little Women in general is the writing style is so positive, so superficially focused on nice things that when I first read this chapter, I found it a little dull. And it was only on my second <laughs> and third reading that I really picked up on the discomfort underneath this chapter. And the discomfort in the first half of the chapter is that Amy and Laurie have really never been one-on-one with each other as a man and a woman. And there is a ton of emphasis on the brotherly way that Laurie has with her. But the (laughs) subtext of that is maybe their relationship is not brother-sister. Maybe it's going to be a little something more. But it would be unseemly to say that, especially since they do have a brother-sister dynamic. You don't want (laughs) to You don't want to make it weird if that feeling is not mutual on both sides. So that's the first half of the chapter. And then they go to a dance together. The midpoint of the chapter is kind of a lovely sequence of Amy Mm -hmm. prinking is the wonderful word that is used for this. I think prinking is what we would now call primping. We have this really (laughs) fun women's magazine description of her (laughs) outfit and her makeup and her hairstyle. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of detail about her hair, actually, and her Mm -hmm. white satin slippers. It's a lot of fun. It's vicariously fun if you like (laughs) outfits and makeup. And then Amy and Lori go to the ball together. And the tension between them increases because there's obviously chemistry there and there's even a little bit of flirtation there, but they're sort of not fully aligned with each other yet. And so Laurie makes a couple of faux pas. For example, Mm -hmm. he wants to dance with Amy and he asks her to dance in a really casual way. He's like, do you care to dance? Which I guess is the equivalent going, hey, do you want to dance or whatever? (laughs) And Amy takes umbrage and Mm -hmm. she gives him a really sarcastic answer. She says, one usually does at a ball. Like one usually (laughs) does dance at a ball. 
which the narrator makes clear is Amy sending a message like, if you're going to dance with me, you have to formally ask me to dance. You can't be casual like this with me. And (laughs) Laurie, to his credit, picks up on this, realizes his mistake and does a do-over and asks her very formally to dance. And they do dance. And from that point forward, things go much more smoothly between them. And the final section of the chapter is a really firing on all cylinders, flirtatious conversation between Amy and Laurie. And by the end of the chapter, it is quite clear that they are seeing each other with new eyes as maybe not brother and sister anymore, but as something else. And we end on a little bit of a cliffhanger as we wonder, okay, who's going to make the next move? Yes. So I'll tell you right now, this is kind of the first in this series of chapters that are all about Amy and Laurie as we drive toward the finish. And I've recorded the episodes on all of the coming chapters, but not this one. I've been doing it in reverse a little bit. So this is very, it was very fun to come back to this, the beginning after the recording of those episodes, because I think that Alcott teased them up in such a fun, sexy way here. It definitely, it's a very heterosexual chapter, I think, probably only rivaled by the John and Meg chapters. But the dynamic is not conventional in important ways. And I'm very excited for us to get into that. I feel like before we get into the fun, sexy stuff, though, earlier today, I was like, we have a really fun, slutty chapter today. So it's going to be good. Before we get into the fun, slutty stuff, we unfortunately have to get into the bummer stuff, which is the reference to meek Jews. (laughs) Meek Jews followed by the reference to the big nose Jew later in the chapter. Did you catch that one? I have the entire, (laughs) yeah, the anti-Semitism jumps out in this chapter, very off-putting and strange, considering the ways in which otherwise this book and Alcott's life, they kind of push up against conventional racism and discrimination of the time. This is very, the reference to meek Jews, Amy makes a visit to the bank to pick up some letters and it's Avigdor's is the bank, so they're going to a Jewish bank. And then- We meet at the ball, Baron Rothschild's private secretary, a large-nosed Jew in tight boots, affably beaming upon the world as if his master's name crowned him with a golden halo. So (laughs) I want to say that is pretty typical anti-Semitism for the time. Meek Jews really threw me because that is not a stereotype of Jews that I'm particularly familiar with these days. I mean, (laughs) if anything, the Jewish stereotypes in my life are completely the opposite of that, that Jews are loud and... I'm, you know, I'm something of a meek Jew myself, but that's, I don't know, maybe she was looking at this quiet Orthodox family. I, I don't know what she <laughs> meant by meek Jews. I cannot picture this in my mind. Well, like, I mean, I'm reading that. I don't know how she means it in the context of people walking around on a sunny day. Yeah. But I think I read meek Jews as kind of a reference to this stereotype of perpetual Jewish defeat. You know, is that what she's talking about? I don't know. Have you read A Tree Grows in Brooklyn? Uh, Yes, I have. Yeah. So I read it for the first time a year or two ago, and I was so struck by it. So that novel is set around the time of Anne of Green Gables, early 1900s. So slightly after this time, but kind of the same era and in America. (laughs) And the main character, Francie, she has this moment where she says that she's jealous of the Jews in her neighborhood because the most striking characteristic of Jewish women she sees on the streets of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, is that pregnant women carry themselves so proudly. And in her (laughs) Irish community, the women are so meek and pregnant women always hunch over and try to hide their pregnancies. (laughs) Jewish women or Jewesses, 
says in the book, just oh, stick wow. it out there and stick it around. So truly, Louisa May Alcott is out of the loop here with her meek juice. So meek juice potentially, I'm not going to go as far as to say it's progressive. And it's also funny, meek juice is utterly at odds with Baron Rothschild showing off at the party. Yeah. Right? What <laughs> no, is yeah, happening I don't know. here? This is all by way of saying, I don't know what she meant by that. What did she mean by this? What did you mean I by don't it? Know. What do you mean, Jennifer Lawrence voice? What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> no, and I think it's very upsetting and off-putting. We've talked about this on the show before. We have an early scrap bag episode with Daniel Okrent, the author of a book called The Guarded Gate, which is about the history of anti-Jewish and anti-Irish and Italian immigration sentiment perpetuated in New England around this time. We talked about kind of Lori and Italian Americans, but we also got into Jewish immigrants and the way that they were treated. And Daniel has some insight into how Alcott might have thought of Jewish people. We also just did an episode with Andrew Leland, and he mentioned he was surprised by the anti-Semitism in the book and found it unsettling next to Professor Bear and this upstanding Germanic <laughs> intellectual... <laughs> So it's it's really upsetting. It's off-putting. And yeah, especially given what we know about Alcott and how devoted she was to racial equality for Black Americans. I don't know. It's When I find contradictions like this in the work of someone I really admire, it's a helpful reminder to me to look for places in my life where I might be wrong about something or I might be overlooking something. If someone who is so smart and so talented and has made such a bigger mark on the world than I ever will can miss something so obvious. What am I missing? Right. That's yeah, how you know, I-, I wonder if this is too charitable of me, but it does occur to me since you say that you were saying this is like a blind spot on the author's part. And I'm inclined to agree with you because from everything I know of Louisa May Alcott, she was, you know, at worst a liberal, the bad kind of liberal who wanted to think yeah. of herself as having good takes about everything, but definitely had prejudices. I know that you are fond of this chapter, but to me, this chapter does not feel like one of the ones that Louisa May Alcott really threw her whole heart into. This seems oh, sure. Like- yeah, maybe one of the ones she wrote on deadline. And I think perhaps the news <laughs> is a sign that she's not thinking with her whole head. She's not writing with mm. her whole heart. She's going fast. She's maybe being a little bit sloppy. She's letting it show a little. She's not putting her whole head in the game. I think maybe the casual anti-Semitism is evidence that this is not, that, I don't know, this is not something that she really thought hard about and okay. cared and loved and poured over. I would give you that if it weren't for the pretty long description of Baron Rothschild's private secretary <laughs> and Avigdor's <laughs> the banker. That suggests some fluency and kind of anti-Semitic tropes. You know what? Fair enough. Yeah. I'll give you that. You can have that. I'm not going to defend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And just to loop back to Meek Jews, I we also got a reference in this paragraph to ugly Russians. And that was explicitly because she had this Polish friend, Lot Laddie. We've talked about him before on the pod, friend of the pod, Laddie. And she he kind of woke her up to the ways that the Russians were oppressing the Polish. <laughs> so that's why the Russians are ugly here. And notably, this was a period of pogroms in Russia against Jewish people. So maybe that was also, someone was whispering in her ear about that. Maybe that's why... Maybe Laddie had some prejudices of his own against Jewish people, which he then passed on to Lou. It's hard to say. We just don't have enough. It's not like she was writing in her diaries, these are my feelings about Jewish people. It's not, I don't think it's particularly a theme in her work. 
And unlike a lot of other of her contemporaries, that's not nothing because we do have authors in the canon who literally were writing in their diaries. I hate the Jews. <laughs> we really got I don't care for the Jews. Tell me about it. I'm going through the Sylvia Plath thing right now. And <laughs> she really, yeah, you know, she really was in her journals. Like, let me tell you how I feel. What we do see in the Alcott diaries is she's like, I'm never going to hire another Irish woman. Which is <laughs> She's just like very... <laughs> They're so fucking lazy. <laughs> Man, that is so charmingly mid-century to have ethnic prejudices against different European nationalities who could be yeah. working for you as a domestic servant. Yeah, and it's it's funny because even that's at odds with, I think Hannah, she's a sympathetic character, right? She's not portrayed as lazy or shifty or sleeping on the job. So I don't know what happened. I don't know which particular Irish woman pissed her off. I think, are we ready to move on from this? Just I am so ready to move on. From, okay. I'm so ready to move on from the meek Jews. Yes. From the meek Jews. I Yeah, Jews, if you're listening, obviously we love and stand you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, read Idlewild. That is, Jewish characters in that book are not meek in the least. <laughs> <laughs> to be totally fair, Nell is meek. You know what? They're non-meek Jews to set, offset it. Well, so let's get to Lori. He is walking down the promenade. He looks like an Italian. He's dressed like an Englishman. He has the independent air of an American, a combination which caused sundry pairs of feminine eyes to look approvingly after him and sundry dandies in black velvet Mm. suits with rose-colored neckties, buff gloves, and orange flowers in their buttonholes to (laughs) shrug their shoulders and then envy him his inches. I envy him his inches too, believe me. I have envied many a man his inches. <laughs> I don't. Why would you? Well, yeah. I, <laughs> I, you can envy the inches. You can just appreciate the inches. I definitely appreciate the inches. Yes. it's. I mean, yes. it's what we were saying about identification and desire. Do I want yes, your I, inches or do I want to be your inches? <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's fun and striking and bisexual that... She doesn't just leave it at sundry feminine eyes looking approvingly at him, but it's feminine eyes and dandies. And these fashionable men are all looking at him and like, "Mm." they're angry, but it's fun and sexy to me that we get the male and the female gaze on Lori in this way. I do think it is such a classic Louisa May Alcott touch that she wants us to know that the men are looking at him too. Really, only Lou yes. would have thought to ask, and the men were gazing at him too, and they had flowers in their buttonholes. Yep. It was a beautiful Christmas morning in France, and all the men were looking at this beautiful man. Yes, and I mean, I'm now looking at Victorian flower language to say, what does it mean that she he has orange flowers in their buttonholes. And we know before on her wedding day, Meg refuses orange blossoms. Orange tree blossoms symbolize innocence and chastity. And so I thought it was so fun and cool that she was like, no orange blossoms for me. (laughs) I know what I'm doing. (laughs) If the dove coat is rocking, don't come a knocking. So the Victorians, an orange rose sent the message of fascination and desire. So I don't know if it's orange roses, but we have orange flowers in their buttonholes. Could be so many things. Man, fascination yes. and desire sounds a little generic to me, I gotta say. Yeah. I don't think that's a very specific for that flower. Yeah, so an orange rose sent fascination and desire. An orange lily meant strong dislike. So that's, you send someone a bouquet <laughs> of orange lilies to be like, fuck you. 
Orange flowers, generally, they can symbolize excitement, joy, positivity, passion, energy, and enthusiasm. So there are all kinds of things that this might mean. I'm honestly inclined to think the orange flower in the buttonhole is a reference to fascination and desire. And the placement of the fascination and desire flower in the buttonhole is pointed. <laughs> That's just me. It's So he's, you know, he's on the promenade. He's looking for Amy. They're pretty faces to admire. The young man is taking little notice of them. It's sort of not named explicitly in this chapter because it's sort of Amy is wondering. Amy doesn't fully know yet, but obviously Lori has not moved on from Joe. So he's not. Actually, that's another example of the writing style of this novel being so yes. superficially on the positive that if I didn't know yes. better, I might have thought reading this chapter out of context that he had not yet been rejected by Joe because it is so completely yes. unspoken and unacknowledged. But of yeah. course, it is the sour subtext of this whole chapter. <laughs> yeah, Amy no- Amy seems to notice that something's bothering him, but simply doesn't press the matter. <laughs> yeah. She's not like, hey, what's like eating you, Lori? She just- what I do love, there's a beautiful phrase, though, when he sees Amy, it says, his whole face woke up. And I just love that phrase. I want to linger on that. His whole face woke up. But then he waves his hat like a boy. Like a boy. So he's not one? What's going on here? <laughs> it's like, oh, like a boy as opposed to a man. Right. Like a boy as opposed to a man. I, I don't know what and kind you know, of like... I think this is actually, I think, the first instance of yes. this chapter subtly setting up the tension of how should Amy and Laurie be with each other. Yeah, I'm reminded of something like our Lord and Savior ContraPoints once said, talking about her own transition. And she said, being a boy was fine, but being a man was not. And I think that's a tension that we also see in Little Women in that I think, obviously, Joe from page one cannot get over her desire to be a boy. But I think even for Joe, being a girl is okay in a way that being a woman is not and growing into womanhood. And I think that we see that in the rejection scene where Joe rejects Laurie, that Joe yeah. has the foresight to understand that to be with Laurie as a woman and a man would be unbearable to Joe. And I yeah. think maybe, I think what we have in this chapter that we're looking at today is <laughs> Laurie sort of testing it out with another March sister. Could I be a yes. man and a woman with Amy March where I could not be a man and a woman with Joe? Yeah. And I think the reason it works is because... <laughs> Alcott very deliberately positions, explicitly positions Amy in a dominant role over Laurie and Laurie in a role of submission to Amy. I I don't think they're quite gender fucking in here, but it's pointed and notable that Amy is, Amy literally has the reins. They're in a carriage, then a horse-drawn carriage. Amy calls from the carriage. Laurie hops into the carriage. Amy, who preferred to drive for her parasol whip and blue reins over the white pony's backs, afforded her infinite satisfaction. That is <laughs> that is such a good yes. catch that Amy literally has the reins. Amy is at yeah. the wheel, not the literal yeah. wheel, the metaphorical wheel. Yeah. Amy is holding a whip. Yes. And it affords her <laughs> infinite satisfaction. I, let's... <laughs> I'm just noticing. I, it's it's I, really very I, cool, honestly. It's, it's very cool. I have to figure out how to point this out, but I think Alcott, fervent abolitionist, has to take care. She's she's holding the whip over white ponies. Please don't get it twisted. Don't interpret it that way. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't read it that way. I think white ponies are yeah. just the most elegant color of pony you can have in France. Okay. I don't think she was... You know, you have to remember, horse-drawn carriages were literally the only way to get around. So I think a whip okay. just did not 
have the same connotation that it has for us. That's yeah. You would see okay. And it, literally every time you went anywhere. I don't know. I don't know. I think it was so friend of mine for Alcott. I guess it's a parasol whip. Who knows? I think it's just a, it's just something I'm noticing here. But I think basically we've seen versions of this where the princess gets into the prince's carriage, right? And in this, Amy is like, get in my carriage and sit there while I drive. And later on, Lori takes the reins, but only so that Amy can sprawl out and luxuriously read her letters aloud. So even then, it's service to Amy so that she can do what she wants to do. But I think it's funny here that Amy is enjoying independence and dominion, and she's using it like, (laughs) you know, it's like a little chess game for her. She is, she's not giving Laurie an easy time. She's ordering him around. She's making him work for it when he's insufficiently enthusiastic at the ball, when he assumes that he has her attention, she goes off and dances with person after person and makes him sweat, basically. And I think it's so, by the end, Lori, oh, here's another reference to meekness. Lori sat bolt upright and meekly took her empty plate. Wow, like some kind of do. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Anyway, he meekly took her empty plate feeling an odd sort of pleasure in having quote-unquote little Amy order him about, for she had lost her shyness now and felt an irresistible desire to trample on him, as girls have a delightful way of doing when lords of creation sow any signs of subjection. That is explicitly domination submission language here, and Laurie is into it. He feels an odd sort of pleasure, and Amy feels an irresistible desire to be the dominant one here. And I think that is so... When you said this is the most heterosexual chapter, it is, but also it's flipping the script in an important way here. I absolutely love that passage. I really do. I think it's so sexy and so flirty and fun. But on my second and third readings, I thought about it Mm -hmm. some more and I realized we talked about the how there's so much subtext that is just going completely unacknowledged in this chapter. And yes, yeah, part of it is that Laurie has just been rejected by Joe. But I think another really important subtext of what Amy is doing here, and this is subtext Mm -hmm. that Greta Gerwig brought out very explicitly in her adaptation, is so Laurie has just been rejected by Joe. Meg Mm -hmm. is off the market. She is married. There is a very brief exchange early in the chapter where Amy and Laurie catch up about Beth and they talk about Beth's poor health. And as is always the case in this novel, they can only put the most positive spin on it and be so cheerful about it, but it is very, very clear from their exchange that they both understand that Beth is not going to make it. So Amy's no moron. Amy understands Mm -hmm. that Lori has always wanted to marry into the March family and that his first choice and that his first choice was Joe. And, Mm -hmm. you know, barring Joe, maybe he would have considered Meg or Beth, but they are all off limits. They have all been eliminated for him. So Amy understands that if Laurie is going to put a move on her, it might be because he is settling for her. None of this is explicit, but I think this is all underneath the surface. And so what Amy is really doing here, especially in that moment I talked about earlier, where she's like, you can't ask me to dance that way. You have to be formal with me. You have to woo me and court me. I think Amy's motivation in this chapter is to show Laurie that if you want me, you're going to have to fight for me. You can't settle for me. I am not your sloppy force. I am not your <laughs> I am not your consolation prize. I know that realistically, if you're going to marry a March sister, it has to be me. But that can't be the only reason that we do this. You have to treat me yes. like a queen and a god. She doesn't know yet that Joe has rejected Laurie. 
Oh, she doesn't? She doesn't know that. No, she doesn't know that until I think the next time we touch down on Amy and Lori. For all she knows, Joe is back at home. Nothing has happened. And she's still courting the fuck out of Lori. What does that say? Yeah. Okay. Does that change your interpretation of Amy's motivation here? It's just so because does she? So why is she? Does she not think that Joe and Lori are going to get together? One. Does she think that's the foregone conclusion? But she wants him anyway. Is this more like I'm going to steal him? (laughs) What is going through Amy's mind? Oh, that is so fascinating. I'm embarrassed that yeah. I mixed the timeline here. I think, no, it's fine. But I'm so glad that I was wrong because that gave you the occasion to correct me. And this is so much more interesting, yeah. actually. It is. What is, she, what is Amy thinking? She's having this irresistible desire. There's no sign at all that she's thinking of, oh, what would Joe think if she knew that I was flirting and dancing with Lori? Lori's thought process is more straightforward. He's sort of waking up to the fact that Amy may be an option. Because, you know, I think obviously he wants to marry into the March family, but it's possible that he never, because Amy is so much, she's the baby of the family, right? It's possible he just never thought of her in that way. And he's just still really heartbroken over Joe. But Amy's motivations are harder to tease out. We get, there's one little reference here to, at the ball, we get a reference to some grim maiden aunts. So, which is, it's, I mean, I, I don't know what that says about how Lou saw herself as, as a famous, famously a maiden aunt, but I think Amy has a real horror of being that, right? And yeah. she's also enjoying the delightful sense of power, which comes when young girls first discover the new and lovely kingdom they are born to rule by virtue of beauty, youth, and womanhood. <laughs> and I don't know what it says. She She's holding these Joe figures in such disdain as she's coming into this powerful femininity and powerful yeah powerful is a really good word for amy's vibe in this whole chapter this is a chapter in which amy sort of assumes her full power amy blossoms into a woman in this chapter and what much of what's happening in this chapter is laurie realizing that amy is a woman now and sort of yeah Eyeing his behavior accordingly as he realizes, (laughs) oh, this isn't my kid sister anymore. This is the capital W. And it's very powerful is the word you use there. And yeah. So yeah, it's a very interesting question to what extent Amy is conscious of any of this and what her designs on Laurie are at this point. What we know about the earlier drafts of Little Women is that initially Amy was going all over Europe and she was flirting with every boy. I have a crush on every boy. Uh, (laughs) That's Amy. And initially, like Fred Vaughn was sort of an unwelcome suitor who was following her. And she was like, oh, I can't shake this loser. (laughs) Or what? No, Fred Vaughn left the picture. And then there was just another suitor altogether who was bothering her. And she was like, this is such a pain in the ass. But I think for whatever reason, a lot of the references to Amy just flirting up a storm with different boys, that was all struck. Fred Vaughn became the main dude. In her earlier kind of dispatch home from Europe, she says, I think he's going to propose and I might say yes. So She's in a place now where she's angling toward Fred Vaughn. But here we actually do get a taste of that kind of thing of Amy just flirting and enjoying it. Really, this is (laughs) this diary entry from actual May Alcott that I love where she says, you know, I'm I'm so proud of Lou's literary success. I wish I had talent for anything but flirting. (laughs) It was an art. It was something she did very well. And I think... 
you know, it, we could probably, Amy sees it as harmless to flirt up a storm with a bunch of guys. Probably she sees Lori as part of that. She, like, there's no evidence at all that she sees even kind of subtextually or in her interior monologue that she thinks of Lori as being off limits because of Joe. Yeah. Can I say a thing? <laughs> yes. Yeah, you can. You're here. <laughs> There's a little moment I love in the middle of this chapter where it's right on the heels of that wonderful sequence where Amy is mm-hmm. giving herself a little makeover. I just love, I know I said this before, but I just love the detail that Alcott goes into with the, Amy covers herself in something called illusion. And I got to say, I don't know what yes. that is. I don't know if you figure that out. Oh Do you know what God. illusion? It's tool. It's literally tool. Okay. I think she's so, using a, a French word for it. It's just, okay. it's tool. Oh, illusion. So, okay, so Amy has covered herself in tulle. It's lovely. She's wearing rouge on her te- cheeks. She has her hair done in an elegant knot in the back of her head. It's so lovely. You can really, oh, and white satin slippers. You can really picture yeah. this beautiful outfit. And so, wait, I just want to say, I love that whole sequence. But the moment I am referring to now is on the heels of that makeover sequence, Lori goes and sees Amy for the first time. And do you remember how he greets her? Do you remember the first thing out of his mouth? What does he say? He says, hello, Diana, which is a nice flirty oh. little thing to say because she's so wow. beautiful. He's certainly saying that she looks like a Roman goddess. But then do you remember what she says in response? She says, good evening, Apollo. She says, good evening, Apollo, which is <laughs> on the one hand, her just responding in flirty kind yeah. because oh, she looks like a beautiful Roman goddess. He looks like a handsome Roman god. But remember, mm-hmm. cast your mind back to mythology. What is the mythological relationship between Diana and Apollo? I genuinely have no idea. <laughs> oh, they're brother and sister. <laughs> they're twins, I think. So this is a wonderful, ambiguous moment that could be read multiple ways. Are they flirting yeah. with each other? Are they marveling at each other's beauty? Or is Amy putting him in his place and reminding him, don't get too flirty with me now because we're kind of brother and sister? Now, something that I have to highlight here is that we were just talking about this in the episode on Enigmas, but the, (laughs) so Enigmas features a scene where essentially the man who is a woman in disguise marries, quote unquote, a woman. He brings her home and introduces her as his wife, but it's actually his sister. And that's part of the disguise. She's disguised as his wife. (laughs) And what Alice was saying is that often in Victorian literature, to get around kind of unspeakability on taboos, you would substitute one taboo in for another taboo. And so you were to understand in Moby Dick, cannibalism is subtextually homosexuality, right? Oh, that makes so much sense. I understand that, yeah. What Alice was saying is in Enigmas or when (laughs) Bernard Noel brings home his wife, who's actually his sister, we're meant to understand this reference to the taboo of incest as a reference to the taboo of homosexuality. And, you know, likewise in Little Women, when Joe says, I just wish I could marry Meg myself and keep her safe and and the family, that's a clear communication of homosexuality couched in the taboo of incest. And here we have Lori and Amy greeting each other as Apollo and Diana as a flirtation. And so what does that mean? (laughs) I guess it makes sense because Louisa Mm -hmm. May Alcott... Uh, and, you know, everyone in that time in general was living in such a homosocial world. And yes. it was just, it was unusual to have mm-hmm. friendships that were not same sex. Yeah. And it makes sense that Amy and Lori are struggling to connect with each other and relate with each other now that they're not kids mm-hmm. anymore, sharing a space, sharing a yeah. house. It's 
it's odd for an adult man mm-hmm. and an adult woman to have this close friendship that they have. And yes. so the only framework they have for acknowledging it is we are brother and sister, like Apollo and Diana. Right. And maybe that's another sexy turn of the screw in this chapter that like, <laughs> uh, we have to sort of play lip service to the idea that we're basically brother and sister, but that's not what's happening between us right now. Yes. And the yeah. only way we acknowledge this spark between us is to pretend that it's a brother sister spark, but it is, yes. we are increasingly realizing so much yeah. more than that. It's sort of like a little wink, wink to the audience. It's like, they say they're brother and sister, but and with all the other language we've gotten about how in Best Secret, which is the chapter immediately before this, Joe says, Lori will maybe become our brother through Amy. Amy is not thinking of, Amy has no thought of what Joe might want, but Joe is sitting on the beach with Beth going like, I don't know if Lori marries Amy. <laughs> it's just very, I want to, I, I need to correct something that you said. You said that Amy puts on rouge. Okay. Reference to Rouge at the end of the chapter. Was she talking about metaphorical Rouge? Well, so he says at the end, he says, you look like Balzac's femme paints par elle meme, he said, as he fanned her with one hand and held her coffee cup in the other. So he's saying she looks red. And she says, my Rouge won't come off. And Amy rubbed her brilliant cheek and showed him her white glove with a sober simplicity that made him laugh outright. So Amy doesn't have to put on rouge. She's just naturally oh, rosy and beautiful. You are so and, right. Now you read that aloud. I, yeah. You are, of course, right. I was just looking at that line yeah. right before we started the call and I yeah. forgot the context. But of course, her rouge won't come off because it's natural. And the way that she demonstrates that, just putting her white glove to her cheek and showing it and it's pristine white, that is such a... I love that gesture. This is Alcott gesture at its very best. I think that is so fun and sexy. I love that for Amy. Um, yeah. You know, at the Iowa Writers Workshop, I learned the concept <laughs> of the buzzword was process as plot. And we have some wonderful yes. process as plot in Amy, in, in Alcott just taking us through the motions of Amy getting dressed <laughs> for this party. Yes. And it's so real for me that by the end of this process, having gone through with Amy step by step, how she puts on her illusion and ties her <laughs> hair up in a little knot and puts on her white satin slippers, something about going through this process with Amy <laughs> makes me root for her. Like, I've done this with her. Yes. I have yeah. put on her white satin slippers. I've done her hair for her. And now I really <laughs> want her to be the belle of the bowl. It makes me root for her in a way that I would not if Alcott had just cut straight to Amy being beautiful at the ball. Yes. Yeah. By no, taking okay. us through step by step and showing yeah. showing exactly what it felt like to do all this work. I am now aligned with Amy. I know how much work she put into this. And yeah. I'm rooting for her more than I otherwise would have been. Because I think little women readers in general do not root for Amy in the same way that they root for Joe. Yeah. yeah. And I think probably Alcott knew that if she was going to make Amy and Lori happen, she was going to have to really sell it. And she spends a lot she spends four chapters, like we get four chapters, I think, of just Amy and Lori talking in Europe. And no one else is intruding. It's just about their relationship. I think pacing is an issue for this book, right? There's sort of every adaptation of Little Women until Greta Gerwig's had this kind of third act problem where we're plotting toward Bear and Amy and Lori. <laughs> it's like, oh, here we go. But reading it and like being in the moment the way we are and kind of doing this close chapter by chapter reading, I'm completely in the moment with with them. I am watching Amy put on that bridal white and I'm going, ooh. <laughs> she shows up at the ball in a white dress, right? Do we know if white dresses were traditional yet for brides at the time of this book's publication? I know that Meg wore a gray silk dress to be married, so I'm not 100%. <laughs> okay, so maybe 
I think it's quite possible that white dresses did not have the symbolism that they have now. But still, I'm sure regardless, yeah. Amy looks lovely. She looks like a marble statue. That's why he calls her Diana. Yes. I'm going to look up white dress wedding convention history while I have you here. Okay. Oh, the white wedding gown worn by many brides today didn't become popular until the Victorian era. In fact, many contribute the popularity to Queen Victoria herself who wore white on her wedding day. So yeah, we were just kind of in the early days of white as bridal. Yeah. I would not be surprised if the March sisters in general were not on the cutting edge of European fashion in their wedding. Well, Amy is. But Amy, Amy is definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Amy is on the cutting edge of European fashion. Yeah, wow. I, so yeah, Amy is Amy is having her hot girl Christmas. She's having a wonderful time. But yeah, I think Alcott does something every time she writes a straight couple, which is she just cannot sit still in regular gender conventions. If it's Megan John Brooks, she's going to show us the nitty gritty of their fights and their marital negotiations and figuring out how to make the balance equal. If she's going to show them making love, then Meg is going to cross dress <laughs> before that happens. She's going to put on John's coat, maybe with nothing underneath and go, what do you think of my new silk dress? If God, I love that moment. I know it's so it's yeah. Greta, <laughs> go back in time. <laughs> I have some script suggestions. <laughs> the Amy and Lori, if that's going to happen, then Amy is going to be the dominant one. And she is going to give us explicit language about dominance and submission where Lori takes pleasure in submitting. And Amy has an irresistible desire to dominate Lori. And she is holding the reins and the whip, <laughs> right? And she's driving. She has a delightful sense of power. It's not the conventional prince and princess the princess coming under the prince's spell. It goes back to even in the first book when Alcott is subverting the traditional gender dynamic by having Laurie up in the tower and Joe on the ground calling up to him, right? Yes, but may I complicate what you're saying one bit? You may. <laughs> I just want this by pointing out that at the very end of the chapter, Amy, her control slips a little bit and she makes a little comment that she instantly regrets. Okay, Yes. So having gotten perhaps a little too comfortable with Laurie over the course of the ball, Amy is a little too relaxed, a little too comfortable, and she makes yes. a little offhand reference to how poor she is. And instantly oh, yeah. was just made that comment because she knows it's a little tacky. And why is it tacky? Because they're actually, the power dynamic between them is actually not at all mm. entirely in Amy's favor. She does have all the beauty and all the youth and all the flirty power, but... Right. At the end of the day, she is broke as fuck. And it would be <laughs> highly in her interest to marry Laurie mm -hmm. because he is phenomenally rich. And they both know this. And yes. I think Amy sort of feels like she's accidentally shown her hand a little there by letting mm -hmm. on that she is poor and could really use a rich husband to buy her nice things. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. I think, yeah, you're right about that. She regrets the last sentence. Laurie likes her the better for that. So they're kind of, the class dynamic is in full effect as always. There's not a ton here, apart from the fact that he looks Italian at the beginning. She's not really hitting us over the head with the knowledge that if Amy marries Sorry, if Laurie marries Amy, then that sort of whitens him. That gets him closer to the core of white society as a half-Italian man. But at the very end, the very last line of this is, The impulse that wrought this agreeable change was the result of one of the new impressions, which both of them were unconsciously giving and receiving. So, if anything, the Amy dominance, 
Lori's submission is sort of balanced out in that last sentence by, oh, they're both giving and receiving, which is interesting. Yeah. It's like the class dynamic allows that to be the case. One last thing I want to touch on is the huge contrast between this chapter and then Meg goes to Vanity Fair in the first oh, yeah. chapter, in the first book. Oh, that, that is such an interesting point because, yeah, last time we saw Laurie at a ball, he was not thriving in his <laughs> element the way he is no. here. And, you know, I know we all grow and mature with age, but otherwise mm-hmm. I might be tempted to call him a hypocrite for being yeah. such a jerk to Meg for dressing up all mm-hmm. nice for her ball. I don't, and I don't know what happened to Alcott between the composition of these two books that Meg going to a ball and getting herself all fancied up and having a nice time is cause for a moral lecture. Where here, Amy does the exact same thing and has a wonderful time. <laughs> like, and Lori loves it. What happened? <laughs> Isn't that funny? I'm sure you could. You know, Alcott has given us enough characterization that you could come up with a plausible explanation for why it's okay when Amy does it in France. But I kind of don't want to do that work on behalf of Alcott because I suspect that the real answer is that she just didn't care as much this time around. The second half, what is the name of the second half of Little Women? What was it published under the title? It was published as Good Wives in Britain. Good Wives, that was it. I don't, I actually, I don't know if it wasn't just Little Women Part 2 in the United States. Oh, okay. But we are in the Good Wives section of Little Women. Mm -hmm. And I just find that section to be a little more mercenary, a little bit more written on deadline than Little Women was. The first one was for all of Alcott's insistence that the first one was mercenary (laughs) and written on deadline. I think there's a reason that everybody remembers the first half and not the second half. Yes. Uh, Besides the fact that everyone who comes on this podcast is like, as a child, I read the first half and I didn't know there was a second half. I didn't know that Beth dies. I was like, what are you talking about (laughs) vis-a-vis Professor Bear? (laughs) No, but... (laughs) Something very different is happening here with the gender of going to a ball and being a woman at a ball. And I don't know, the charity that Alcott is willing to give a girl who dresses up pretty for a ball. (laughs) And not having Lori be like a moral mouthpiece. In fact, Lori being the one who has to be sort of chastised at this ball for not behaving correctly. Yeah, he had it coming. Is she just saying Meg wasn't a dom enough in the end? (laughs) That was Meg's problem. No, you know, it's funny. I think probably the answer is Meg goes to Vanity Fair. It's a story for children meant to warn little girls against aspiring mm. to be fancy and beautiful. And Good Wives is a story for older readers about what it might be like to put yeah. yourself on the marriage market as a marketable woman. And yeah. obviously, these two things contradict each other and are paradoxical. And that's not really Alcott's fault. That's more society's fault than Alcott's fault. Yeah. But that is the best most straightforward explanation for this contradiction in the novel. Because I think Meg circa Meg goes to Vanity Fair and Amy circa New Impressions are probably pretty close in age, right? Well, yeah. In fact, you say that, but part of the problem of Meg goes to Vanity Fair is she overhears some girls talking and saying, oh, I'm sure that Mrs. March is planning to marry Meg off to Lori. So that was also about becoming a marriageable young woman. Although we we are told specifically to Lori. So it's it's very... <laughs> Meg Goes to Vanity Fair is one of those big pointy rocks in this book that is just so hard to get past or smooth over, you know? Yeah, 
so much of Little Women has aged beautifully, and it is a timeless novel in, in so many ways. But Meg Goes to Vanity Fair is not one of those parts. Yeah, it aged badly enough that the following year, Alcott was like, let me just redo that scene <laughs> in a completely different way. That's sort of the note I wanted to end on is just the contrast between these those two chapters. James, thank you so much for being here. Where can people find you? Where can they support you? Where can they buy Idlewild? What's going on? Oh, man, such a pleasure to be on your podcast. I'm so glad I got to come back. People can visit my official website at jamesfrankiethomas.com. You know, I'm never going to leave Twitter. So I am happy to have people follow me on Twitter. You know, just Google James Frankie Thomas Twitter. It'll come right (laughs) up. But I am James underscore F underscore Thomas. I'm also James Frankie Thomas on Instagram, but I really don't use Instagram. I've been under so much pressure to use it for book promotion. And I cannot for the life of me get the hang of it. I cannot figure out how to share something to a story. It's I really struggle with Instagram. So you know, that's a last resort. If you really need to get in touch with me, I prefer Twitter. You're so valid. How much would I have to pay you to switch from Twitter to threads? (laughs) You know, you'd have to pay every Twitter user. Well, not every Twitter user, you'd have to pay (laughs) a lot of Twitter users to switch over to threads, and then I would happily make the switch. Okay. So yeah, I mean, if you took issue with what Louisa May Alcott says about meek Jews in this chapter, then Elon Musk is not your friend. And I think that James should join me on threads. Because <laughs> we will only defeat him if everyone moves to threads. You have to stop waiting for people to join threads and just join threads. I apologize. Anyway, buy Idlewild, follow James on all kinds of platforms. As always, I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. You can find me online at peytonthomas.ca. You can buy my book, Both Sides Now, wherever you buy Idlewild. They're a great package deal, back-to-back read. If you're a teenager, read Both Sides Now now, and then read Idlewild in three years. I think that's a good... (laughs) pattern, right? Except does a bit of a disservice to both sides now. It's not like a starter for Idlewild. It is a wonderful book in its own right. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. You can now also find us on Instagram. We are at Joe's Boys Pod. You can follow us there for news, updates, sneak previews of forthcoming episodes. We posted the pictures of Timothy Chalamet and Kylie Jenner hanging out at the Renaissance World Tour with some captions of dialogue that they're absolutely not speaking. I'd like to take this moment to just issue a very brief, can I just make a quick statement on Kylie Mothe, the item, you know? Is that what we're calling them? Kylie Mothe? <laughs> I don't think anyone is calling it that, and that's not even French or English. So, but listen, Kylie Mathay, I was so pissy the last several months as all this quote-unquote news was coming out about them dating because there was no evidence for it. Their cars were seen in the same geographic area. Sources tell Dumois that a girl from Euphoria told me that they were dating, and I wasn't sure... Now that they are, and we know that, and there are pictures of them making out at the Renaissance World Tour, truly, from the bottom of my heart, my only reaction is like, good for them, you know? Good for them. Kylie Jenner, quietly, I've always been a fan of her Handmaid's Tale birthday party from a few years back. Do you remember that? (laughs) I sure do. Yeah, I'd forgotten until you posted it on Instagram, and then it all came back to me. And I do remember thinking it was incredibly funny at the time. It was. And she got dragged for it. People were like, this is so clueless and out of touch. If the Red Scare girls did that, you would be like, this is so funny, right? Let's, so let's, <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm pro Kylie Mathay. It took me about five seconds on like a Timothy Chalamet stan account where they were like, 
I hope he's using condoms and that's not him. He's not that tall and he doesn't smoke and it's a paid actor. It just took me five seconds of reading stuff like that to be like, oh, this is not a team I want to be on. So I'm coming out as pro Kylie Mathay. I hope you can respect that. <laughs> I got to say, Peyton, I genuinely admire your willingness to change your mind when confronted with new information. It's such a rare gift that you have. And especially in the stand community, you don't see yeah. it very often. I think you are a credit yeah this community and a model yeah. that we all emulate. And you know what? Thank you so much for that. And it, I'm also, re- my initial pissiness was not, I don't think it was opposition to the relationship. It was this assumption of it happening and the total absence of evidence, I think was pissing me off. The willingness in a post-truth age to be like Kylie and Timothy are an item without any proof whatsoever. But now that we have proof, you know what? Happy for them. I wish I was kissing someone at the Beyonce concert, frankly. <laughs> That's that's about all I have to say. Thanks so much for listening. And we will see you in two weeks when we have Willa Fitzgerald coming on the podcast to talk about the next chapter on the shelf and her experience playing Meg March in the Masterpiece Theater adaptation of Little Women opposite Maya Hawke and Angela Lansbury. That one's going to be really fun. So tune in for that. All right. Thanks, James. Thanks, James.